You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Hello, Life Group Leaders. Hope you're doing well today, and thanks for tuning in to the Living Scent Podcast. This is actually, we've kind of transitioned now to... And back to the Life Group Leader back Podcast. Back to the Life Group Leader Podcast. Um, over the last f- several weeks, we have um, been sitting down with Jason Dukes to unpack some questions around the Living Scent curriculum, which he wrote and which we have been looking at in our life groups and also hearing from our pastors from the platforms on Sunday mornings as well. And I tell you, it's been a great series. I mean, it's really, so far, it's it's really um, caused us to, to really think about who we are as sent people, sent by God in the same way that Jesus was sent by the Father uh, to to come to an earth to seek and save the lost, and uh, we've gotten some some really good remarks and some good feedback from from folks that are in life groups. Maybe even some folks, even some of you have have mentioned it, and so it's been a been a good series. Paul, have you heard some some of the same things? Yeah, it's been a convicting series. It's been a challenging series for a lot of people, and I think it's uh, reframed ministry for a lot of our people. And opened a lot of eyes that their busyness is just their mission field. And uh, just really understanding themselves as the church so they can be on mission perpetually. It's been a powerful message. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really stuck out to me was making disciples is not something that I just add on to my life. It's something that I am doing as a lifestyle within the rhythms of my life. And so um, that's that's a you know good practical thing to think about uh, as I seek to make disciples. And, and the Lord opens doors uh, for those sorts of things, just to open your eyes to people that are already in your life with whom you can begin to share Christ's love with and uh, share the gospel with them, demonstrate the gospel as you live. So it's uh, been, been a good series. And so we've got about six more weeks to go in it. And so Paul and I now are going to kind of transition back to the way we were doing it before uh, through the Transforming Truth series. And uh, so we're just going to unpack a little bit of, a, of the chapter, uh, take a look at the at the scripture focus for the week, and just have some remarks and maybe some things to think about as you were uh, leading this lesson, teaching this lesson in your life groups this week. Uh, before we do that, though, I do want to mention just a few things that uh, um, you might want to be aware of. Uh, obviously, here in just about a week is um, the VBS, and so really want you as a as a life group leader to to pray. If you would join us in praying for VBS week, June twelfth through the sixteenth, uh, we anticipate having well over a thousand kids on campus at the Brentwood campus that day, and um, and, and tons of volunteers, and it's a huge, huge, important week for our uh, our church and, and for our community. And we really want to, to reap a harvest. And so we're praying that God would uh, really move in the lives of those kids and speak through the leaders and just all the activities and all the games and all the Bible that are, that's being taught 
would serve to point people to Christ and that uh, children would, uh, for the first time perhaps, put their, their faith in Christ and, and seek to follow him. So we're excited about the week. We've got a lot of planning in place right now. If you want to participate in anything VBS for that week, um, please contact Brad Smith over in the children's ministry area, and he will get you plugged in to uh, to serve in some capacity. Yeah. And like Jay was saying, with the mentality that all of our life is discipleship and the fundamental point is discipleship, this is a good way to encourage your people to step out in service. Um, just logistically, we forget that the ratios for children are different. We can have, I mean, a lot of you have large life groups, 20 or more people, and you can have one leader to guide it. When you deal with children, the ratios go way up where you need three adults per baby or toddler. It's just an incredible number of volunteers needed. But it's a chance for you to challenge your groups to say, hey, part of your discipleship is serving the local body. Um, and part of their growth is serving in the local body. And this would be a great place to plug in where, boy, it's just such a ministry of presence to be here with these children and then just share gospel stories with them. Uh, something that we could all do. And it may be a good plug in a good on-ramp for some of your people. That's right. Also, uh, another announcement to, to um, tell you about is coming up here, and we're a few months away, but I, I wanted to put it on your radar even now, is the new curriculum that will be launching, which will be the very last one of the year. Uh, we're excited about this one, and it's called Spiritual Leadership. And it was written by Jeff Yorg, I never can say his name. It's spelled I O R G. Yeah. How do you even say that? I don't I think you're right. It's Orge. I orge. Think. Silent I. Yeah, I silent think. everything. Orge. And he's a president of Golden Gate Seminary in California. Yeah, which has now moved somewhere. But yeah, it's mo- yeah. I mean, we're same, just same, same body, though. Same body, uh, same, same institution. Yeah. <laughs> West Coast. Anyway. But it's great stuff in this, in this book. Spiritual leadership. It's, it's so applicable in so many ways, at home, at work, uh, at church, uh, in the community, wh- wherever you are, to, to lead spiritually. And, many, and, and you're, you're a spiritual leader, uh, just in your role as a life group leader. And so these are just some real practical, biblically-based lessons around what it looks like to be a man or a woman who is leading others spiritually, leading yourself and leading others. And if you and if you enjoy living sin, this plays in with it really, really well. Really well. So August 13th will be the rollout for that. Uh, again, seven weeks of that uh, beginning 13th of August, and that will be preached uh, in the sermon series. So we hope to have alignment with the life groups in the sermon on Sundays. And we ask you to participate in that if you would. And, um, There'll be some other things, too, around that series that we'll be letting you know about here in the next month or so. But want to put that on your radar. It's going to be a great series. And then kind of coming off of that, um, you know, this time of the year is when we are praying diligently for God to raise up more leaders in our church to uh, lead small groups, to lead uh, other types of groups, focus groups, or whatever sort of group that they have an interest in leading. Always in need of leaders, and so if you know someone in your group that you think has the the capacity, has the chops, let's say, to be a leader, uh, as as you are, please let us know. Pray with us that God would raise up those leaders, but also 
if you know of some people that would be good, that we need to know, that we need to meet, that we need to have a conversation with, please tell Paul and I. We really want to have leaders that are developed from within the system, if that makes sense. Oftentimes, Paul and I put out uh, a um, announcement in the bulletin or something. Hey, if you're interested in leading, let us know. A lot of those people come from with outside our life group system, and that's okay. But we prefer to have people that are kind of grown up and developed from within this life group system, meaning that they're already in life groups. They're being cultivated. They're being poured into by you, a life group leader, and being raised up to be ready to be sent out. So we're hoping that to have more of those. Yeah, and between living sin and spiritual leadership is just a great time to continue to keep that on the front of your mind and continue to challenge your group members that is part of reaching the lost and is part of maturing the new believer and the uh, more mature believers to grow them in the faith. And part of our own group, part of our own growth in faith is leading others. Uh, so yeah, you give us the names and we'll invest the time in them and, and continue your development, which you've already done with them. Yep. Well, let's move into our lesson time now. And, uh, this week we're going to be in chapter eight in the Living Scent Curriculum. And the title of the chapter is Developing a Scent Culture. And, uh, the, the focal passage for the lesson this week is very familiar to many of you. You probably, uh, taught many lessons on John chapter one. Uh, memorable, obviously, um, you've, you've, you've studied it, you've read it. And uh, some rich, rich theology in this. Uh, John 1, verses 1 through 18. And so Jason, as he begins talking about um, this idea of a sent culture, a church with a sent culture, he kind of uh, contrasts the difference between a ascending church and ascending culture. And I think he makes some, some, some pretty good, um, reflections here, uh, on 80, 81, and 82. And you may want to, you may want to mention some of those, um, as you're teaching and, and maybe even talk about, uh, some, some of the things that, uh, that as, as our church is doing, doing well to help kind of facilitate ascending culture. Um, you know, I think we're getting there, Paul. Uh, we, we want to be a church that sends and we see that. We, we see missionaries being sent overseas. We know that we've got disciples who are making disciples uh, through life groups and even in their own communities and in their neighborhoods, perhaps even making disciples at work. And so we see that, but we want to see it more, don't we? Yeah, we do. And I think this chapter is reflective of something you mentioned earlier already, is that disciple making becomes the one big thing that we do is not just another pocket or silo of our faith, but it's what our whole faith is directed and oriented towards. Uh, And I think that's what he's trying to get at with the discipling culture is that instead of having these pockets who go out and plant new churches and these pockets of people who go do foreign missions and pockets of people who jump into MTI, that the entire body just sees all of those as disciple-making opportunities. And whether it is at work or with a new church plant or with a foreign mission, it's all just for the purpose of discipling those who are in the kingdom and those who will be in the kingdom as we continually share the faith. And so the kind of the purpose of this lesson is to kind of show that Jesus was sent into the world to invite others into his family and to show them God, to show them the Father. 
and as followers of Jesus, we join him in this mission. In this mission, you know, it it's just a reminder to us uh, how the scriptures say, "As the Father has sent me, so I send you." As Jesus is speaking to his disciples, we also, as disciples in the twenty first century, are sent people, and that doesn't that's not just uh, reserved for. Uh, the devout. It's not just reserved for church staff. It's not just reserved for vocational ministers. The expectation is, is that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you have said, yes, Jesus is my Lord. He is my Savior. I'm following him. I'm a part of his family. I'm submitting my life to him. Then therefore, we are also sent people in the same way that the early disciples were. And so there are implications there. So if we're not living that way, then I think we're falling short of our disciple making. Yeah, and one thing Jason Dukes and this book, Living Scent, have opened my eyes to is that if we were to imagine a disciple, I don't know, disciple degree or something like that as a big spectrum with Jesus Christ at one end and we're all moving to be formed, transformed, and conformed into the image of Christ, uh, what he's opened my eyes to are two things. One, that we don't get to a certain stage in that before we start sharing and before we start discipling. Because, and here's the second thing, is that there's always somebody behind you on that spectrum. There's always a newer believer. Uh, there's always somebody who is walking a similar path as you, um, in whatever way you came to faith. There's always somebody walking a similar path who's behind you on that road there's always somebody you can invest your wisdom in that you can point to a scripture that's meaningful to you or that you can point to when christ has shown up in your life in the midst of some circumstance and so like jay saying discipleship isn't a they go do this thing while we watch or we just support them in doing it but that we all ought to be doing it because there's always always somebody that needs our story and that needs our perspective on the gospel that's right so as we take a look at this this uh, verse today, John 1, right from the very beginning, we see that Jesus took the initiative, that um, he came to us, and he came to us. And the word there that um, many scholars use, and you may be familiar with, I'm sure you are, but you may want to wow your group members this week by using this word, maybe even writing it on the whiteboard or wherever you are. The incarnation. Paul, talk to us a little bit about the significance of the incarnate Christ. And if you flip back to your Transforming Truths book, you'll see some chapters on the incarnation, and it might be good to revisit some of that material with your groups uh, this coming week. The incarnation truly is one of my favorite doctrines because um, the incarnation, as understood biblically, is such a unique belief in the wide pantheon of religious ideas and worldviews. So other faiths have incarnations in them, like Hinduism, uh, but the idea of the singular God uh, becoming like us for the sake of redeeming us is a foreign concept that I'm I'm yet to see anywhere uh, in any other faith. So you'll have incarnations that come to share some generic wisdom or come to point a general direction, but to have the incarnate supreme being of the universe come in order to redeem his people through suffering is just a, such a uniquely Christian thing. And it really ought to drive much of our faith and, and much of our life in that we live incarnationally as well. 
So doctrinally, the things we want to hold out are that Jesus was spirit from the beginning. It doesn't make any sense to become flesh if, if you were always flesh or something like that. So Jesus was spirit in the beginning uh, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and they are the ones who created uh, who created the universe. A powerful image that the early church fathers used was the sun. Uh, I mean, like the star, the sun in the sky, the star. Uh, so once the sun exists, you immediately from that sun get sun rays and you get heat out of it. And they're not independent things per se. They all come as a package. And that's the image that these early church theologians and early church fathers used to talk about the Trinity and to talk about how the sun proceeds from the father and the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Uh, but either way, Jesus made a decision of his own will in accord with the will of the rest of the Trinity to become human in order to redeem the creation. And it it always stuns me just what Jesus gave up. A lot of times when we talk about Jesus' sacrifice, we mean almost solely the floggings and the torture and the crucifixion, all of which is bad enough. But even to go from that perfect spiritual being, the unchanging spiritual being in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit, to then become flesh as a baby, and to have to grow, possibly get sick, to have to learn stuff because his divine consciousness may not have been fully accessible in the beginning. And to, I mean, I don't know, even just to sprain an ankle for the eternal second person of the Trinity to twist an ankle uh, walking. Or maybe he hit his thumb with a hammer while, while he was working on carpentry with Joseph. And to think that that is the ruler of the universe from Revelation 5 with the scroll book just shows the passion that our God has for his creatures to endure something like that uh, just for the sake of reconciling people who essentially hate you, but you can show a better way and redeem their sin nature. Boy, it's just, uh, man, there's just no words for it. Yeah. So Christ came incarnationally as a human. He became us in order to redeem us. In a word the theologians like to use is he condescended Mm -hmm. to become human. Yeah. He did absolutely condescended um, from his place uh, in heaven to come to earth to to uh, to be one of us in order to save us and as Paul said took on all the limitations of humanity uh, fully human fully man so we we talked about that a lot obviously in our transforming truths but but the same is true and it's still just as significant and important to talk about it when it comes to living sin because. God the Father sent his son Jesus on a mission. And part of that mission was to become flesh. Incarnationally came to us, came to humanity in order to redeem us, redeem humanity um, on mission. And so so the implication is for us to think of ways in which we too, as we are thinking, how do we live? Though we are humans, obviously when we talk about living incarnationally or living sin, we're not talking about putting on flesh, we, we are flesh, and we've, we've got that. But what does that mean in our lives today as we are engaging culture, as we are engaging communities with the gospel? How do we, as sit ones, live incarnationally in those environments? And and that's, that's a, that, it's not something that I can sit here and tell you how to do. It's not yeah. something here that Paul needs to, uh, can, can tell you how to do step one, step two, step three. That's that's a God spirit led initiative that um, that is unique in every context. 
And the beauty of the Living Scent book is it helps us understand that what it starts with is a go-get-em attitude. Uh, as we have this identity as sent ones because the Lord we follow was a sent one, our attitude becomes go get them, just like Jesus came and got us and uh, came after us in order to redeem us. Uh, there's two there's two words in this text, 1 through 18, that I really like. One is word or logos in the Greek, and the other is uh, dwelling, and dwelling place. So I think it's worth spending a little time on on both of those. Uh, the reason Lagos speaks to me, and particularly as a philosopher, is uh, in Greek philosophy, early on, before Plato, before Socrates, there was a guy named Heraclitus, and I think he, I think his origins were Ephesus, uh, the same Ephesus where Paul did some of his work, and uh, Heraclitus was a strange guy, he's called the Dark One, because no one really understood what he was saying, he would throw out these little phrases that were confusing intentionally in order to start a conversation So he ended up being run out of town just because he was so annoying. Nevertheless, he was the first person that uh, we know of, at least through his disciples, that used the term logos. And then the Stoics, who we see Paul interacting with in Acts 17, pick up this term of logos as a guiding principle. And what Heraclitus meant was that this is the one unchanging aspect of reality. So everything else is in flux, everything else changes except the logos, which is itself the principle of change. Now, the reason I highlight that is to say that is not what we mean when we say Lagos in the Bible. So I do not think that John was borrowing from Heraclitus. But I do want to point out how John was using uh, a word that was already prominent in a couple of different philosophies in order to demonstrate the superiority of Christ over those philosophies. And so instead of this generic principle of change or for the Stoics, this eternal fate that we're all moving towards and Truth is just coming to understand what fate has in store for you. John takes this word logos and says, no, this is an individual who has come to redeem us. It's not a principle. It's not blind fate, but it's an intentional person with personal agency and will who has come to redeem his people. And so it is a governing principle and it is a guide, but it's an individual who comes after, uh, after his people to get them. Uh, so I really just like that. I like that Paul, that John, I mean, uses the term logos and Um, is very explicit about what we want to mean in terms of Jesus Christ. Uh, So what do you think about dwelling? Uh, I certainly think about God's spirit in the temple on dwelling, because John, a couple chapters later in John 4, Mm -hmm. is going to talk about where do we worship on this mount or that mount, and he tells the the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, well, no, we worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, That's sort of the first thing that pops into my mind. Yeah, and if you take a look at the word dwelling, Um, interpreted or or, um, uh, in the original language of the Greek, the Koine Greek in the New Testament, the word dwell could literally mean took up residence. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, so residence literally take up residence or pitched his tent. And, And you see that. And, and in the, in the scriptures, that, that whole idea of, of God pitching his tent with people either in the Old Testament, tabernacling with them or, or whatever, it's not meant to be a temporary sort of reality. It's meant to uh, infer a permanence, a uh, an ongoing relationship that he desires to be close to his people. Um, if you take a look at uh, Revelation 21, right here at the end, uh, you know, um, 
John is again writing this book of Revelation and, and he's seeing these visions and and he is uh, talking about here in, in uh, chapter 21 of Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth. And again, this word dwell is used here in this chapter in verses uh, in verse 3. And I'm just going to read a, a few of that to you right now, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And here's where I want you to, to, to get the to understand or at least hear the word dwell. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So this whole idea, same word used in the Greek there. Uh, God will take a residence. God is dwelling with his people. That's a significant thing to consider. Where we've come from as a human people um, who have been separated from God because of sin, now through Christ have been brought near. Because of the incarnational Christ who came as human, redeemed on mission, uh, redeemed his people, and now has brought humanity back to God through his sacrifice and his death and sacrifice. Yeah, it's so cool. And if you think back to the God's Unfolding Story books we did last year, uh, we we have God's presence in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve have the unmediated presence of the Godhead right there with them. And then that's lost, of course, through the rebellion in the fall. So we see in Revelation 21, 3, the cosmic fulfillment of the restoration of the Edenic relationship again, in that God comes to dwell in the midst of his people and his people become the fully the people of God. And it's in Christ and in the incarnation that we get at least a partial fulfillment and a foreshadowing of that cosmic end time reality in that God made his dwelling with us by becoming human in order to redeem that fallen humanity. It's just, it's just incredible how it all syncs up together. And we get these glimpses of the, there's another theological word of the eschatological, the end time hope of God f- fulfilling and actualizing the eternal kingdom. And we get a dramatic foreshadowing of it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mm. So in the, um, I think in the Holman standard, the, the verse in John one fourteen says, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. He, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The message, um, interpretation more of a modern contemporary version uh of of the scriptures says that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood (laughs) that's an interesting way to think about it but uh but it is true um he he moved into our neighborhood came into our world um and uh to show us the father and to showed us show us what it looks like to truly be a human who perfectly reflects the glory of God, the the image of God in the world. Yeah, now the danger, of course, is to think that God wasn't a part of our world before that. But I think what Peterson's getting after in the message, and I do like this, is that uh, God's taking upon our full experience mm-hmm. by our world, like our immediate human experience of the world. God took that on in order to redeem it, and that's certainly a powerful image for sure. 
Um, <clears throat> also in the book, um, just going back to the Living Scent book, here at the end, there's a there's kind of a chart, um, page 86 and 87. You may want to familiarize yourself with with some of those things. I think that, that could, might, might be a few things there that you might want to point out to to your groups uh, this this Sunday as you are uh, teaching. But uh, I think one other thing that that kind of comes to mind um, as a highlight, perhaps from the from this particular chapter, talking about the culture, uh, having a scent culture in in your church. You know, one of the things that I think about culture, culture is not something that can be changed in a day. Paul, Paul, you learn mutual friend of Paul and Paul and mine, Alan Taylor, who is well known, works at LifeWay. A Sunday school guru. Sunday school guru, mm-hmm. worked at First Baptist Church Woodstock, Georgia for many years. Uh, Paul, you had a had a lunch with him and you talked about some of this stuff. Yeah, it was essentially the culture is just notoriously difficult to get your hands around. It seems to always be changing. The moment you think you understand it, it seems to become something different. And I was asking Alan, how do you change? How do you influence? And then ultimately, how do you change a culture? If you want the people to become a certain thing, how do you do it? And his response, as usual, was to ask me a question, which was how do cultures get to be what they are? So I thought for a second and responded, well, I guess just over time, it just becomes the habits, just what people do. And he says, well, that's how you change it, little by little, over time. And you continually push it towards a trajectory. And then before you know it, the people will be this thing, and this will be your culture now. So just little by little, over time. Yeah, so I'm thinking about you and me uh as we lead groups, how do we help to establish or begin establishing a culture of, of being sent, of taking that on as our identity, but also taking that on as, as what we practically do every day yeah, as a disciple maker. Yeah. Um, and that just takes time. And, yep. and I think that a really good example comes to mind. It actually comes from, the Sozo class. Mm-hmm. Um, some of you may be familiar with that class, but Maurice Painter teaches that class. And one of the things that I love about what Maurice does every single week is he asks his group a question to begin their time together. And the question is something like, where have you seen God show up and show out in your life this week? That's or, right. Where have you seen God at work? around yeah. you, in your life and even around you this week and maybe even the lives of people. Every week. Every single week. And so then people, you know, will will share and raise their hand and say, well, this is where I saw God do something amazing in my life or do something amazing through this circumstance at work or something amazing in the life of this person or, yeah. or you know, what, whatever the case. And, yeah. and, and what is he doing? Well, Maurice is... is establishing a culture of a people who are have their eyes open and hearts open to seeing God work around them and even in their life. Not so closed off or tunnel visioned to 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 not notice God's hand at work around them. And yeah. so they don't show up on Sunday to get God. They show up on Sunday in large part to share what God's already doing. That's right. And so what that's done is, you know, it makes them think even through the week, okay, 
where is God working around me? So on Sunday when I go in, I'm going to brag on God a little bit. That's right. And, and that's really the sort of culture that Maurice has created in his class, which I think is awesome. In the same way, what, what sort of things can you do in your life group that could help to perpetuate a scent culture? One of the things that uh, the book uh, points out, Jason points out in this chapter, is when ending your group time after your lesson, and you have, you've had discussion and you've unpacked the text and you've done all these things, in terms of application or practical application, could you ask the question, who are you going to share this truth with this week? Or, you know, and maybe that's one of the questions you ask as a leader. Um, Paul, real quick, talk about some of the things that, that these I will statements that you've helped, to, that you begin incorporating in some of the groups that you've led or leading now. I'll put him on the spot here. He yeah, no, that's fine. The, the I will statements, um, I guess the biggest complaint I hear in groups that I'm a part of, not even groups I lead, but just groups that I'm a, I'm a part of, is that they do feel oftentimes as if it's a once a week sort of thing, that they come here in order to get, and they wonder how it's supposed to play out more dramatically. They want something more pervasive and consistent in their life. And so I, I borrow this from our Bible reading group model. Uh, they always end with an I will statement. So they read some text. What does this text say about God, man, and then my obedience to it? And then they always end with what's your I will statement? How are you going to apply this specifically in your own life? And then next week you come and share some of those things. So of course, I mean, you can't go around the room with 20 people, but this is why smaller groups out of the bigger group are important. Because if you have groups of four or five, you can share your I will statements each week. Now, so for an example, from what we've talked about today, about Jesus living sent, about Jesus having a go get them attitude and coming into the, as the message would say, neighborhood. Uh, an I will statement might be, um, I'm going to pray for two people in my neighborhood who I am going to go after in some way as the Lord reveals it. And then the next week they would come in and say, all right, who'd you pray for? What'd you pray about as you pray for them? Yeah. And then it, it just dramatically increases accountability. People take ownership of the group and of the mission and of the culture. And it, uh, it really brings about some blessed fruit in the community. And so it's, it's just the whole idea of trying to help your people, equip your people, train your people to begin thinking about others. Yeah. Not just me. And me, my transformation as a follower of Jesus. But what about others? Maybe who don't even know Christ, but maybe there's some others that, that have a relationship with Christ, but need, that, that need encouragement, that need to help, help growing, help yeah. to be grown. Who is God sending me to? Who is God sending me to? And who, who is it that I need to share this truth with this week? Or yeah. to whom is God sending me for the, grammaticians out there. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a good gram- grammaticist. No, I, I did it too. I like, I like ending in prepositions. It's more normal. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, anyway, this is a few practical things to think about as you are kind of unpacking this chapter this week. And we truly hope that it's a good, a good time with your group and that, um, God uh, blesses you in your prep time this week as you think about, um, this, this lesson and that on Sunday or whenever it is that you're teaching this lesson that that God's Spirit will be with you as you teach. Uh, we appreciate you. We love you. We want you to know that we're always here for you to support and encourage you in any way that we can. We realize that we don't get a chance to talk with each and every one of you every single week. And it's really impossible to do that. But we always want to make ourselves available to you. So please uh, don't hesitate at all to, uh, to reach out to us if there's any needs that you have. 
Paul, your last words? Uh, email, phone, one-on-one. We make ourselves available. That's right. All right. Well, hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.